It's past midnight in the suburbs of Central Florida. When the shadows are this deep, everything looks like a beast, a stranger watching you roll past. Purple and orange string lights wound up the porches, and tiny inflatable ghosts smiled from the trimmed grass. This little town is ready for Halloween. I'm here because this neighborhood, College Park, is facing a dilemma that so many cities in the county have faced. One day, out of nowhere, a cat went missing. And just like that, the terror returns to this peaceful suburb. Coyotes have arrived. In the quiet, as the crickets roar from their invisible perches, the people of this town sleep just five minutes from downtown. But running through their yards, passing under their fences, intruding into the suburban bubble, are beasts, hungry and seeking out a meal. I peered from my car, searching for an out-of-place movement, an unexpected form, but found none. The coyotes were hiding tonight. Coyotes in Florida are populous in every county. They're hunters, though smaller than other predators of their type. They hunt little animals like rodents and foxes, and in the case of many neighborhoods, outdoor cats. They've been arriving in towns like this for years now, slipping in the cover of dark into our yards, our streets, our homesteads. But it's part of a chain of events, over and over again, where development wipes out wild spaces in the area and the coyotes arrive, in search of nourishment or even just a place to call their own. The chaos in this city, as far as officials can tell, was whipped up by just two coyotes. Signs warning about their arrival pepper every other yard. And with more wild spaces at risk in the areas outside of Orlando's urban sprawl, there's a fear that coyotes will be showing up in more backyards, disturbing even more peace. Coyotes rarely face endangerment. They scrounge and survive and never falter. They adapt and move on and find new places to call their territory. They've been predators in Florida for decades, and despite all the threats to their survival, these coyotes survive. Members of the canine family have a tendency to adapt. The coyotes certainly, but domestic dogs have varied their species and joined our homes. But the oldest relative in this family, the wolf, has been historically endangered, and in many cases, their subspecies have been completely decimated all over the country. One such species is the Florida black wolf, which once roamed the Florida wilderness. Not much is known about this creature at all. We don't know its habits, its range, its behavior. One of the only lasting references to the Florida black wolf is from the one and only John James Audubon in his book, The Viviparous Quadrupeds of North America. Viviparous means mammal. Audubon went around the country during the 19th century collecting images of all the various wildlife that he saw, some that he would misname or incorrectly describe, but his work was essential at the time, painting the creatures he saw with vibrancy and life. When he came to Florida, he chose to conquer the whole peninsula and took his team all the way down the east coast to the Keys, where he then traveled to the Dry Tortugas. While in the state, he collected images of tropical birds and mysterious swamp creatures that he watched from the banks. The Florida black wolf, as he drew it, is mid-leap, its body in an upward arch, its mouth hanging slightly ajar, its wild eyes peering into the sky. In the distance, there are buffalo in the plains. This is because Audubon dubbed the creature the Black American Wolf, though almost all instances of black wolves outside of Florida are dark-furred members of the gray wolf species. For all intents and purposes, America's only black wolf species belonged to Florida. 
and as Audubon traveled around our country, he saw one firsthand. Then, they were wiped out. Florida was urbanizing, and the Democratic hold on the state of Florida grew more tense. It was 1908, and cities were just beginning the sprawl that we now know so well. Species were being hunted, not just for extra resources, but for sport. Before any environmentalists or scientists could get to know the Florida black wolf at all, our own progress destroyed them. As far as we can tell, the Florida black wolf was our very own wolf, found nowhere else. And over a century ago, the last of its species died. But down in Miami, a group of researchers are just now getting to know an animal extremely similar to our lost wolf. They are equally unusual, a rarity in a family of creatures known for their folklore connection. They are wholly our own. They can be found nowhere else in the world. They have mysterious origins, and very little is still known about them. They are the Florida bonneted bats, one of the rarest and most spectacular creatures in the state. We are fortunate that right now we are observing them and finding ways to keep them safe. The Florida bonneted bat, just as the Florida black wolves before them, are facing an existential crisis. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is episode 7 of our 12-episode second season. It's the month of October, and I have the extreme pleasure of telling you some of my favorite spooky stories in the state. This week, I'm going to be telling you about our unexpected neighbor, the Florida bonneted bat, their incredible history and amazing relatives, and the brilliant scientists aiming to save the bats before it's too late. So its fur has a little variation in color from kind of a really dark brown to almost a, a, a kind of grayish color, but it has a really smooth, fine coat. Uh, its face, uh, you know, a, a lot of people think of bats and they think of some of these really weird face bats, you know, that have all these odd grooves and folds all over their face. They actually have uh, a really, well, I'm biased, kind of a, a really attractive face. They have a long snout, um, and, um, and then they have these two big ears that when they're in flight, they face forward, and that's where it helps get its name. It looks like it's wearing a bonnet on top of its head, so that's where the Florida bonnet bat comes from. That is Dr. Frank Ridgely. He works with Zoo Miami in their conservation and research department. He's a veterinarian, an expert on the Florida bonneted bat. He has spoken on the bats and built up programs to protect and research them. When a bat was found on the zoo's grounds, he hand-raised the pup back to health. The pup's name is Bruce. He's the kind of man who gleefully describes how cute the bat is, while also rattling off the dozens of ways that scientists have worked to study and protect them. And we found out we've got lots of Florida bonded bats visiting the zoo that no one knew about. And we found out it's actually a really important spot for them in Miami. They, they're flying in from all over and coming and foraging at night on our property. So that really started keying my interest. And this bat really is fascinating. They're small enough to fit into the palm of a hand, but they're still the largest bat in Florida. So it's a, a really large bat. Its body length can be around six inches. Its wingspan can be up to around 20 inches. So it's a really good-sized bat. Very, very little was known about it up until around 
2012 uh, when there started to be some research interest and looking at getting it listed on the Federal Endangered Species Act. Like I said, research on this bat is still incredibly new to this community. We have 13 other bat species native to the state of Florida and a handful more that will randomly appear in our ecosystem, ranging in size and behavior. We have the Brazilian free-tailed bat, one of the most prominent mammals on the continent, seen in groups of millions all around the country. They're most prominent in Texas, where they have been named the state mammal. When you picture a typical bat, you're likely imagining a Brazilian free-tailed bat with small triangular ears and tiny leather wings. We have the Seminole bat, whose range extends from New York to Louisiana and most places between. Many of these bats are not endangered in any way, though some are facing population decline, such as the incredibly ugly gray bat. They hide in caves with nasty little cone faces. They're not extremely common in Florida, more prominent along the Mississippi River, but the Florida bonneted bat is ours, all ours, found nowhere else in the world. And they just got placed on the endangered species list in 2013, and the last few years have been a whirlwind of capturing and studying these little creatures as best as we can. It seems insane that a bat of this size and of this range could have evaded South Florida scientists for so long, but the bats have a secret. They are made to fly really high in the sky at high speeds. Um, so I often say, think of all the other bats around here as kind of like moths. They're very agile, they can move in tight spaces, make tight turns. And so if they're moths, the Florida Bonnabat is a jet airplane. They're made for high altitude, super high speed, and they cannot make tight turns. They're, they're not, their wings are long and skinny, made for speed, not wide and short. So when you're a bat biologist, you go put up a net somewhere, Real quick, Dr. Ridgely mentions here mist nets. They are polymer or nylon mesh that hang between two huge posts that cover an area where winged creatures are often traveling, so they can be used to catch birds, large raptors, and bats. They're non-threatening and hang fairly loose so that when a creature hits the net, they're lightly tangled up in it. No physical harm is given to them. From there, scientists arrive at the nest, take the animal back for study to put in a chip or a band or a tracker, and then release them back into their natural habitat. Okay, back to Dr. Ridgely. These bats are not coming anywhere close to our highest netting systems. They are flying way above it. So they're, they're nowhere near to be able to catch them. And so if you want to learn about these bats, you have to find a roost where you can find a lot of them. Uh, but if you can't catch them, you can't find a roost. And then when they occasionally through the years, when FWC biologists receive like an injured one or a sick one and they rehabilitated it and they wanted to put a transmitter on it, they thought, here's our chance. You know, we'll put one of these little transmitters like we do all these other bats and we'll put it on his back and then it will fly back and tell us where they're all living and we can learn more about them. Well, when they would try that with the Florida bonnet bat, they would put the little transmitter on the fur and the bat just did not tolerate it. It would go crazy trying to get that transmitter off and it wouldn't fly and it would sit there until it was able to pull that transmitter off its back. They've been living in the very same ecosystems as us, far above our heads and we never even knew. That's not to say that Floridians have not been interested in our bats. There is ample opportunity outside of the Miami Zoo to see them face to face, and not just the bonneted bats. Up at the Florida Museum at the University of Florida, a trio of bat houses stand in the grass. 
They're tall, protected little white structures like beachside villas, and they leave space for the bats to rest at night and be studied by the individuals working for the museum. The Brazilian free-tailed bat takes up residence, as well as the occasional visit from the southeastern bat and the evening bat. Bat conservancies are all over the state of Florida, people bent on keeping them safe. No other bat conservancy is quite as popular as the Luby Bat Conservancy. Every October for the last 14 years, they've hosted the annual Florida Bat Festival where you can meet local bats and celebrate the whole day long. This year, it's this upcoming Saturday, all day long. If you don't want to attend a festival or go visit the bat houses, just watch the sky as dusk falls along our peninsula. They will appear, little shadows darting so fast you almost think you're imagining them. They embark from their daytime roost to hunt as night encapsulates the sky. From my window, as I write this show, I can see them bursting forth from their hidden homes. They're around, in the crevices, out of sight and out of mind. And despite all stigmas, Floridians have always acknowledged our ability to cohabitate with them. Back in the day, human beings had a very specific idea of how the bats could help. Pest control. Florida's railroad changed the entirety of the Florida Keys overnight. The islands went from isolated communities to parts of the grand network of interconnected cities, and opportunity seekers saw the land to be ripe with untapped potential. No one took to the islands quite like Richter Clyde Perky. By the late 1920s, he owned more land in the Keys than anyone else, and his domain spread across the gaps of ocean with ease. His big project would be on Sugarloaf Key, where he would construct and maintain a fishing lodge for rich tourists who would arrive via train, fish for a few days, and spend all their money. The property, of course, had to be right on the water. But with Florida waters comes Florida heat, and with Florida heat comes Florida bugs. Perky was unluckier than most. Not only did mosquitoes swarm the marshy islands year-round, these were big, and the northern visitors were appalled. Perky had to do something drastic as quickly as possible or he would face financial ruin. Somehow, the work of one Dr. Charles A.R. Campbell came across his desk. History rarely remembers serendipity, but there it was. A man had a problem, and the unusual work of another arrived just in time to solve it. Dr. Campbell had written a book called Bats, Mosquitoes, and Dollars, a treatise on how to maintain your mosquito population as a means to protect your tourism-based business. The main practice presented within was what was called a hygiostatic bat roost. Hygiostatic as a word literally only exists in this context. It was invented by Dr. Campbell to mean, quote, standing for health, end quote. His bat roost was a tall tower built to last through all weather and temperature controlled with lots of places for bats to settle in and get comfy. The first was built in 1918 in San Antonio, Texas by the mayor of the city at the time. It still stands just over a century later, 30 feet tall. This fit Mr. Perky's needs perfectly. Dr. Campbell sent Perky the schematics and with $10,000 spent, he had himself his very own bat tower. He purchased bat bait from Dr. Campbell, a repulsive smelling material that would attract the little fuzzy creatures to their new roost on Sugarloaf Key. Everything was set. What happened next, however, is still a mystery. Perky built the roost, placed the bait, and one of two things happened. Either the transplanted bats brought to hunt mosquitoes immediately left, setting off for Miami's piney forests, or 
The bats never arrived. They had no interest in Perky's bat condominium. The roost eventually fell, two years ago, when Hurricane Irma struck the Keys. The old construct collapsed and is yet to be repaired. Either way, with a small fortune down the drain, Perky had no bats and a constant supply of mosquitoes. The man knew business and tourism, but he didn't know bats. Their roosts are highly crucial to their survival, but specific bats require specific roosts, and none have adapted quite like our bonneted bat. Well, one of the most important things with bat conservation is maintaining their roost location. You know, that's where they go during the day, so that's where they're going to be safe during the day. They're, they're away from predators. Um, they can kind of sleep peacefully, and they can raise their young safe. Based on what we've learned, maybe the most ideal roost would be in an old woodpecker's cavity, <laughs> um, is what these bats would like. And there seems to be a high association with one particular woodpecker. It's the red cockaded woodpecker. It's also been on the federal endangered species list for a long time. And if you look at a map of where these Florida bonded bats are found in high concentrations, Throughout most of Florida, it's where there are still red cockaded woodpeckers. The difference between all the other woodpeckers and the red cockaded is the red cockaded uses living pine trees, large, like 90 to 100 year old pine trees, and they make a cavity in the living tree. So it's, it's a big, robust tree, well insulated from weather fluctuations and, you know, and, and it's living, so it's a lot more stable than a dead tree. Well, as those woodpeckers have disappeared, we think roosting locations for this bat have also disappeared. The pine forest that Dr. Ridgely is talking about here was once Miami's primary ecosystem, long before European settlers entered the scene. One does not think of forests when they think of the marshy Everglades to the west and the long beaches to the east. But for millennia, Miami was defined by its woods. The pine rocklands were dense ecosystems with hard limestone soil and tall pines that reached to the sky. The pines were dry and elevated, small ridges overlooking other small ridges, a boundless forest by the sea. Before human development, the forest was 186,000 acres, from present-day downtown Miami to present-day Florida City at the edge of the Everglades. The forest reigned supreme. Today, only 2% of these forests remain. Miami's boom in the last 100 years is unprecedented. Developers are still snaking out, grabbing bits of green and inhaling it into the maw of urbanization. These forests are tough and adaptable, but with nowhere to grow, they fall away. The unique plants and animals that lied therein are literally scrambling for their last available spots to exist. To make matters worse, researchers at the University of Florida estimate that in the next 50 years, the urban sprawl of Miami will consume another million acres. There are farms at risk and protected ecosystems. Some developers are vouching for a safer and more ecologically sensitive usage of the land, but it's unclear whether or not they will succeed. To add on top of this, the federal government is currently looking at ways to cut the Endangered Species Act. This means that previously protected land could be facing more drilling of fossil fuels. This would not only open ecosystems to pollution and irreversible damage, but would also reduce funding used to maintain the animals and their homes. The animals, though, have nowhere else to go. And the bat is still here. 
they're kind of stuck down here at the tip of South Florida. They can't expand northward uh, because they can't tolerate colder temps, and they don't migrate, so they don't really leave Florida. A lot of species, that doesn't happen. You know, you you change their habitat so much they can't survive. Well, this bat is still around, so it is adaptable. Um, but it's it's uh, hanging in there without any help from us. Uh, it's managed to survive up to this point, and it's living in this urban landscape now. This bat is adaptable enough that it's just using artificial cavities. So what that means in Miami is there we don't have the woodpecker anymore. We don't have 90 to 100-year-old trees anymore, pine trees. Most of the pine trees have, or the pine forest has disappeared but this bat doesn't care. It will use a home. So it moves into Spanish tile on roofs. We find it there. We found it in kind of couple story buildings where maybe they have a wooden kind of uh, truss sticking out and there's a hole in it. Uh, you know, it only has to be about an inch wide and they will use that as an entry and exit point. That's the reason they're still kind of surviving here in the middle of Miami because if there's a, a building with an imperfect Spanish tile or a seam on a roof somewhere uh, that has an inch gap, they can find it and they can move in and they seem perfectly happy to do that. The Florida bonneted bat exists nowhere else in the world. Take a moment to process that. Nowhere else in the world. They roost here in the Spanish tile or in the remaining pine forests. They're watched and cared for by folks like Dr. Ridgely and the other scientists that are still getting to know our bat. It's only really been a short seven years since they came into our scope, unsuccessfully evading us just long enough for us to bring them in and examine them and find every little detail of how they survive. We and they are lucky that we found each other. It's still so recent, our little relationship, the bonneted bat was believed to be extinct at various points in the last century or so. We're lucky that this isn't true, as they unravel the secret magic of their bizarre physiology. They have hyperspeed flight. They have friendly personalities. They have cute faces. And then we actually just published a paper not too long ago. They have something that we don't see in a lot of mammals. They have what's called hypopigmentation or some people will call it piebaldism, where they have these white patches uh, on their abdomens and sometimes on their back. We've just recently recognized that that truly is part of the species, what their kind of characteristic coloration looks like. Oh yeah, and they have distinctive white spots that give their little physiques unique birthmarks. I mean, they are amazing. And like I said, we are lucky. If it wasn't for Audubon's drawing of the Florida black wolf, we may never have known them at all. We still know so little about our wolves, gone before we even had the chance. We have a chance, now, to not make the same mistake twice. And if Dr. Ridgely has anything to say about it, and I sure hope he does, we still have time to solve as many mysteries as there are left to solve. We feel like all it needs is maybe a little bit of help, and if we figure out the few things that it needs to persist and maybe thrive, um, it, it's got a good chance.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is episode 7 of our 12-episode season. Next week, for the final episode of October, I'm going to tell you a ghost story. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I read every single one, and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. Your reviews help the show grow and help it improve every single day. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can find the links to those in the description below. While you're there, why not share the episode with your friends? I'm sure you know someone who would love this episode. You can also send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I'm always looking for more, and as I start writing season three of this show, I always want to hear what you want to hear. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. Dr. Frank Ridgely is an amazing speaker and a fantastic writer. If you would like to see more of what he and his team are up to, please check out the links in the description below. I am extremely excited about their work, and I'm sure that you will enjoy it as much as I have. I'll be back next Monday with another story. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Oh, and have a happy Halloween. Thank you.